dear congregation this morning, we reflect on our own weakness from the chapter that's been given us here in Scripture. Using as our text uh, these words of, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. I think it's something that's clear to every one of us, isn't it? The weakness of our own bodies. When we've been reduced by sickness or by accident, when we feel the, uh, the weakness of old age coming upon us, just the fact that we spend a third of our life sleeping, trying to regain our rest, our strength. It's very clear, it's very obvious to us that we are a weak people, that we are fragile people. And our text speaks very strongly to, to just such a people. Because our weakness is not just physical, right? Some of us might feel quite physically strong this morning. But our weakness is also a moral weakness. May I say a, a spiritual weakness. When we see how quickly it is that we fall back into old patterns of sin. When we see the strength that temptation has upon us. How we give our ear to the, to the tempter, just like Eve gave her ear to the serpent in the garden. Then we can sense too that there's a certain moral weakness about us as well. So we are a weak people. Well, my friends, the book of Isaiah, the whole book of Isaiah is, is a collection of the prophecies of Isaiah where the strength of God is so often put in contrast to the weakness of people. And the, the greatness and the majesty and the transcendence of God is put in contrast to the idol gods that Israel uh, was so often tempted to give their allegiance to. The book of Isaiah is a book of the transcendence of God. The, 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 the note of Isaiah, the, the, the gist of its teaching, is captured for us already in Isaiah 6. Remember that glorious vision, right? where Isaiah sees the Holy One high and lifted up, whose smoke fills the whole temple, right? And the train of his robe, and it goes on, right? Talking about the angels crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. So, this is the book of Isaiah. Now, when we come to the book of Isaiah, and when we read it closely, we come to a very obvious division in the book of Isaiah. And you see that, I put that in my outline, that in our text... Isaiah 1, chapter 1 to 39, is a distinct unit, again, with many different prophecies within it, but still, it's given to a, an audience that is different from the chapters 40 through 66. And again, when you read the book of Isaiah, that becomes quite clear to you, that in chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah the prophet is speaking to a people who are not yet in exile. But Isaiah is promising them that if they continue in their covenant unfaithfulness, they will soon be in exile, and they will be punished severely by the Lord for their spiritual adultery. But what a change when you get to chapter 40 and the rest of the book. In fact, it's right on the very first verse, chapter 40 and verse 1, comfort, O oh, comfort my people. Right there in verse 1 already you see that a a sea change, a massive change has come in the nature and the, 
and the, the message that is given to the people of Israel in these last chapters of Isaiah. Because now the prophet is speaking to a people who are in exile or who have even returned from exile, but a very needy people, a people who've been punished and humbled by the wrath of God. Now you say, well, how can that be possible when, when chapters 1 through 39 were written to a people who were in exile, where it was written to a people almost 200 years before the nation ever went into exile? Isaiah didn't live over 200 years, did he? How could he preach to the people who had returned from exile, right, when he was living and preaching to a people 200 years earlier? So it's a bit of a conundrum. Now, if you're a liberal scholar who don't care about the fact that the Bible is the word of God and that the Bible is historically accurate, you just say, well, somebody else wrote Isaiah 40, verse 66. That, that was what they call second Isaiah or Deutero Isaiah, sometimes they call him. In other words, some other prophet who was kind of, uh, who was like Isaiah, wrote those, chap wrote those chapters and made those prophecies uh, to the people after they had come back from exile. Well, of course, we reject that view, don't we? Because we know that the, uh, the book of Isaiah is, is one unit. It is one book. It is one collection. And the same man wrote the entire, the entire book. So how do we understand this then, this second book? And why is this so important for us when we, or why is it, I should say, so, so relevant to us when we think about what we hope to celebrate this morning, the, sacra the sacrament of communion? Well, my friends, when you think about Israel, and when you think of Isaiah preaching in chapters 1 through 39, speaking to Israel, and, and not just to Israel, but even to the other nations, about the destruction that was going to come upon them, when that destruction came, when the nation of Assyria came down and overran the ten tribes, destroyed them, captured their capital city of Samaria, and then took them in exile back to Assyria with them, you can imagine that at that time, the other nations would be watching. Right now, they probably were destroyed as well. But even so, they would still be watching, and they would say, you know, the God of Israel is just like our gods. He's weak. He's not able to protect his people. Look what happened. The Assyrians came down and attacked Israel. Israel was defeated and went off to exile, just like the other nations. You could see how that would be different than, for example, when the Assyrians came down to attack the two tribes. And remember what Hezekiah, right? You remember the, the miracle that God worked when Hezekiah was attacked by the Assyrians, that 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers were put to death in one night. And God miraculously intervened for the salvation of those two tribes in the south. But God does not do that with the ten tribes in the north. The ten tribes in the north who had many of the same promises that the two tribes, I shouldn't say many, they had all the same promises that the two tribes in the south had. But when the enemy came and attacked the ten tribes in the north, they were completely destroyed. And they were taken off into captivity and they were never heard from again. So this is the question then. Is God able to protect his people? I put this as the grand question. Who protects Israel? What about the God, Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of Israel? He seems to be just like one of these other gods, right? Like uh, Dagon of the Philistines and, and, and Bel, the God of the, of the uh, Babylonians and so on and so forth. He doesn't seem to have any more power than any of them. Well, now God gives Israel a sign. And that is Isaiah 40 through 66. And God says to his people, long before it ever happens, again, centuries before it happens, that when you get into exile, 
Now I want you to read these words. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith our God. And now God speaks to a people who are in exile. Now you can imagine, and I think we had the same thing when we did the prophet Amos last week. Remember how Amos spoke to a people about going into exile long before it happened. Now in the same way, when Isaiah begins to speak comfort to the people of Israel, when you come into exile, here is God's word for you. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. In our text, right? Though the youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble, yet those who wait for the Lord or those who wait on the Lord will rise up like way, as on wings of eagles. When you come into exile, read these words. And this is my word to you when you are in exile. Now, why do I call that a sign? Well, because God even makes it explicit that I'm telling you these things long before they ever happen, which is, by the way, another reason why we can never accept the, the liberal idea that this was written by another man. It wasn't written by Isaiah. It was written by a, a second Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah 40. I really want you to see this in Isaiah 40 and verse 21 through 29. Notice how God, as it were, uh, and I say this reverently, God even puts himself to the test. How will you know who the true God is? Am I just another tribal deity, like the God of the Moabites, the God of the Edomites, and the God of the Philistines? Well, says God, in Isaiah 40, it should be Isaiah 41. Isaiah 40, 41, verse 21. It says Isaiah 40 in the should be Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41 and verse 21. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. In other words, bring forth your idol gods. Whoever your deity is, bring him forth. Let's put him to the test. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. And as for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. In other words, now God says, I'm going to give my people Israel a sign. I'm going to say to all the idols, you tell us what the future is. And then we'll know, because we'll see if it really happens. And now God, Jehovah, the God of Israel, says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And that's actually what he does in Isaiah 40 through 66. He says, you're going to be in exile. And these are the words of comfort I'm going to give you now to my people who've been disciplined and bruised and battered. Isaiah 41, verse 22, right? Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. And continue in verse 23. Again, I'm in chapter 41 and verse 23. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. And then verse 24, here comes the verdict that God says, Behold, you are of no account. In other words, you idol gods are of no account. And your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you, in other words, the one who chooses to worship and to follow you, is an abomination. I have aroused one from the north. You with me there in verse 25? I have aroused one from the north. Who is that? Well, later, Isaiah will even identify this man by name as Cyrus, the Persian general, who will attack the Babylonians and destroy them and will actually well, let's read. Now God is saying what's going to happen. Verse 25, I have aroused one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads the clay. 
Who has declared this from the beginning that we might know? Again, God's going back. He's saying, listen, I tell you these things before they happen. And I'm announcing that Cyrus is going to come and he's going to destroy the nations. Who has declared this, verse 26, from the beginning that we might know? Or from former times that we may say, he is right. Surely there was no one who declared. Surely there was no one who proclaimed. Surely there was no one who heard your words. In other words, no one has ever done this before. No one has ever announced what's going to happen before it happens. And then say, now, if that happens the way I predicted it, then you know that I am the true God. And this is what God Jehovah does, the God of Israel. Formerly, I said to Zion, verse 27, Behold, here they are, and to Jerusalem I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, there is none, and there is no counselor among them. Who, if I ask, can give an answer? Behold, all of them, that is, who of these idols, can I ask, can give an answer? Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. In other words, these idols will never step up to the test. They will never step forward and predict something that's going to happen in the future. Now, I do it. I tell you what's going to happen before it happens. But the idol gods don't do that. And by that, we know that they're worthless. They're just wind and emptiness. This is the sign that God gives to Israel. So now think about this. When the, when the people who actually heard Isaiah giving this prophecy, they must have scoffed at him and laughed and ridiculed this ridiculous man making these statements. First of all, that we're all going to go into exile. Isaiah, look around. The, the, the nation is prosperous. We're living in security. Why are you making these, these doomsday prophecies? Go back to your home. You know, and, 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 you know, and you can just imagine how they must have scoffed at him at this ridiculous, just like Noah, right? Just like they, they scoffed and laughed and mocked with Noah when he was preaching righteousness uh, when the uh, flood was coming. Well, so those people, right? Now, they would have had no idea who Cyrus. And again, remember, Isaiah the prophet mentions Cyrus by name, not here in this chapter, but in one of the later chapters, he mentions Cyrus by name. Now, of course, the people who hear it have no idea who Cyrus is. They've never heard of the man. They think it's ridiculous. They think Isaiah is a little bit, a little bit off, all right? But now, go forward 200 years, and when the year 586 comes, and the Israelites are hauled off into exile, okay, when the 10 tribes are taken off, and the, and the two tribes in the south are taken off into exile, and now they pick up. With what a different set of eyes, my friends, they must have read the prophecies of Isaiah. Now they knew very, very well who Cyrus was. They knew, they knew who, uh, they, they knew that, yes, they were going to go into exile. In fact, they may have been in exile. And they would have looked back and they would have seen God saying 200 years earlier, I announce things that are going to happen before they happen, because I know the future, and because I am the great God, the creator of heaven and earth. And again, we read that chapter together of Isaiah 40, how repeatedly God talks about who he is. All the nations are like a drop in the bucket, like a speck of dust on the scales, and over and over again, right? There's not enough trees in Lebanon to burn for a burnt offering for him. There's not enough animals for a burnt offering. And over and over, to whom then, that was our call to worship, to whom then will you liken God? Or with what likeness will you compare him? 
This is what the God of Israel is. And again, you always have to keep in mind that huge time separation when you read the book of Isaiah between the original readers and the later readers who read it long after Isaiah was dead and gone. And now they saw the truth of the sign. Now the temptation is in Isaiah 40 and verse 27. The temptation for Israel is to say, why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? There they are in exile. They would think that God has forgotten them. God has forgotten all the promises he made. And they even dare to say, notice that last clause, and the justice do me. They even want to claim justice. And the justice do me escapes the notice of my God. As if God somehow didn't know who was really guilty and who was not. There's been a miscarriage of justice here, Israel says. That is the temptation, right? That is the temptation that when we are in exile, and even, my friends, when I think about a week of preparation, when, as it were, we could be in exile, if you spent the week with James, you probably are in exile. You probably feel like you're far from God. You feel how short you come in your life, how much your life is inconsistent with what James teaches, with all the different practical exhortations that he gave us. And the temptation can be to think that God has forgotten me. God has no use for me anymore. I'm so far from God. I'm so far from where I need to be in life. That's the temptation. Now, what's the reality? What's the reality? My fourth point. The reality is who God is. And again, what verse? I mean, I could have chosen any verse. Almost every verse in Isaiah 40 is about this. Let's just look at verse 28. Do you not know? And again, God is speaking to these people in exile. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. And especially that last clause, my friends, his understanding is inscrutable. Uh, we could paraphrase that as, as his plans, his way of administering the world is, is inscrutable. It's almost as if like Israel would say, you know, I, I would like to call an inquiry like Congress does every now and then, right? When they, they call a hearing, right? When they, they call certain people from the business world or whatever because they want to they put them to the third degree, right? And really ask them a bunch of questions. It's almost as if you're going to bring God and put him in the dot, put him in the chair. And now we're going to ask you questions, Lord, about how you are administering your kingdom. And God says, do you not know? Do you not know? His wisdom, his understanding, his methods of of managing his kingdom is inscrutable. And so the question is ruled out of court. My way is hidden from the Lord? Is that possible? That's ridiculous. And the justice do me escapes the notice of my God? This is the reality, my friends. God has not forgotten. God knows every secret of your heart. He knows every thought of your mind. He knows how we spent the last week. And he knows how we've gathered here this morning as we prepare to partake of the communion and of the symbols of his love for us. He knows. His understanding is inscrutable. You can't figure it out. But God is God. And then the conclusion, the conclusion of all this, my friends, in, in verse 30 and 31. The understanding of God, his wisdom is inscrutable. And verse 30, here's, you might say, our wisdom. Though the youth grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord, or who wait on the Lord, 
will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So is all that true what we said? Is it true that God is God? And even though we might think in exile that our way is hidden, that God has forgotten us, he's passed us by, he's done with us, he's washed his hands of us as it were. Yet the truth of it is, my friends, that even the strongest people stumble, even the strongest people grow weak and they fail. But those who wait on the Lord, do you hear that? Because that's such a, that's such a big word in our text today. Those who wait on the Lord, not those who have everything figured out. His understanding, his wisdom is inscrutable. But those who just wait on the Lord. You know, the Queen of England has all these people that wait on her. I imagine our own leadership have this as well, right? People who wait on them, people who do their bidding, they run errands for them and all these different things, right? They wait on them. They don't understand everything the president might be doing or the queen or, or so on and so forth. Uh, well, they, the queen who used to be, I know she passed away now, but so these, these, these people wait on them, right? And they're every need. They're, they're there. And, and anytime they're, they, they receive a command or an order, they go do it. That waiting, my friends, connects us to the power of God. Those who wait on the Lord are, as it were, plugged into the power of God. And their weakness is replaced by God's strength. They mount up with wings like eagles. They mount up with wings like eagles. And the way that is done is by waiting on God. Now, this waiting on God, my friends, is just another word for faith, what we would call faith. And yet that word waiting, again, it shows this, this expectation, this patient waiting on God, not understanding everything, but a willingness to follow him and to do what he commands us to do. Now, with that posture, with that attitude towards the God, the creator of the world, we run and we do not get tired. We walk, and we do not become weary. Now, I know there's tired people here today. There's weary people. You might even be strong physically, but you feel your own weakness. Hear the promise of God today, my friends. Because now as we, as we prepare to partake of the communion, he asks us to wait upon him, to wait upon him in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and his finished work, to wait on that, to trust and trust ourselves to it. And to know that in that body, that broken body in that shed blood, there is a power, there is a strength that is not our own, which enables us to rise up with wings like eagles. Well, my friends, that is the, the beauty of the text that's given us here this morning. I would like with you now to turn to the last part of the form and to read that with you before we turn to the sacrament. I am now on page 39 in the Forms and Prayers book. Page 39. And we'll read these last, the last part of the form here. And we read on page 39 in the Forms and Prayers book, right at the top there, underneath that main heading, celebrating our salvation in Christ, let us also consider the purpose for which our Lord has instituted his supper, that we should do this in remembrance of him. 
And this is how we remember him by it. First, let us be fully persuaded in our hearts that our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the promises made to our forefathers in the Old Testament, was sent by the Father into this world, that he assumed our flesh and blood, that he took upon himself for us the wrath of God, under which we should have perished eternally, that from the beginning of his incarnation until the end of his life on earth, he fulfilled for us all obedience and righteousness of the divine law. This was especially evident when the weight of our sins and of the wrath of God caused him to sweat drops of blood in the garden. He was bound so that we might be loosed from our sins, and afterward he suffered countless insults so that we might never be put to shame. Let us confidently believe that he was innocent, yet put to death that we might be acquitted on the day of judgment, that he even allowed his own blessed body to be nailed to the cross, as, uh, so as to cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In doing so, he took from us the curse and bore it himself, so that he might fill us with his blessing. He humbled us to the very deepest reproach and anguish of hell, in body and soul on the cross, when he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did all of this, so that we might be accepted by God, never to be rejected by him. Indeed, with his death and the shedding of his blood, he confirmed the new and eternal covenant, the covenant of grace and reconciliation, when he said, It is finished, in order that we might firmly believe that we belong to this covenant of grace during the Last Supper. Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That is, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, as a sure reminder and pledge, you shall be admonished and assured of my great love and faithfulness toward you. Because you otherwise would have suffered eternal death, I give my body and blood for you in my death on the cross, and as certainly as this bread is broken before you, and this cup is given to you, and with your mouth you eat and drink in remembrance of me, so surely do I nourish and refresh for everlasting life your hungry and thirsty souls with my crucified body and shed blood. From the institution of this Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see that he directs our faith to his perfect sacrifice, once offered on the cross as the only foundation of our salvation. By this sacrifice, he has become to our hungry and thirsty souls the true food and drink of life eternal. For by his death, he has taken away the cause of our eternal death and misery, our sin. He has also obtained for us the life-giving spirit who dwells in Christ our head and enables us who are his members to have communion with him and be made partakers of his riches, including eternal life, righteousness, and glory. Besides, by this same Spirit, we are also united as members of one body in true Christian love. As the Apostle Paul says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As many grains are ground to, produce one, to prepare one loaf of bread, and as many grapes are pressed together to produce wine, so we who by true faith are incorporated into Christ shall be one body through Christian love, for the sake of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. He loved us so greatly in order that we might show his love toward one another, not only in words, but also in deeds. 
May the almighty, merciful God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ help us in this. Through his Holy Spirit. Amen. That we may obtain all these blessings, let us humble ourselves before God, and with true faith implore him for his grace. Let us pray. Merciful God and Father, we cherish the blessed memory of the death and sufferings of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that in this supper you will so work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that with true confidence we might give ourselves up more and more unto your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that this might allow our burdened and contrite hearts to be nourished and refreshed with the true body and blood of him who is true God and true man, the only heavenly bread. Empower us to no longer live in our sins, knowing that he lives in us and we in him. May we truly be partakers of the new and everlasting covenant of grace. May we not doubt that you will forever be our gracious Father, who does not impute the guilt of our sins to us, and who provides us with all that we need for body and soul. As your dear children and heirs, grant us also your grace, that we may take up our cross cheerfully, deny ourselves, confess our Savior, and in all tribulation, with uplifted head, expect our Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. There he will make our mortal bodies like unto his glorified body, and take us to be with him in eternity. Answer us, O God, and merciful Father, through Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray. And let us all pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I ask the congregation now to rise, please, and to repeat with us the, the, uh, the, the creed. By this holy supper, may we also be strengthened in the Catholic undoubted Christian faith, of which we make profession with heart and mouth, saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, union of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated again. That we may be nourished with Christ, the true heavenly bread, let us not cling with our hearts to external things like bread and wine, but lift our hearts to heaven, where our advocate Jesus Christ is at the right hand of his heavenly Father, where the articles of our Christian faith direct us. Let us not doubt that we shall be nourished and refreshed in our souls with his body and blood through the working of the Holy Spirit, as truly as we receive the holy bread and drink in remembrance of him.
dear congregation, the bread which we break is a communion with the body of Christ. Well, congregation, the text which we had this morning is so simple, uh, it hardly needs uh, elaboration or exposition. It speaks of a, of a waiting people, of a waiting people, and of a weak people who lack strength. And I think that's where we come after a week of preparation, as the Catechism has taught us that the Lord's Supper is for those who are displeased with themselves. My friends, are there here with us this morning those who are displeased with themselves? Because this is the condition. This is the place where we must be if we are to receive the sacrament with a blessing for our own souls. To be, as it were, like those children of Israel in exile. And to know that God is the creator of the ends of the earth. And that he gives us these symbols to represent his love to us, that even in our sin and even in our punishment, even in, in an exile, that he gives us these visible symbols to represent to us that his covenant is certain and sure, and that everyone who takes this bread, everyone who takes what is represented by this bread, by faith is resting on the finished work of Christ and has a sure promise that all their sins are forgiven them. That means, my friends, that in this bread and in this wine, there's a power. When I was thinking about that this week, I thought about that hymn, There is power in the blood. You know that hymn. There is power in the blood. Let me say that line. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Would you over evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. So that even the youths fail. Even the vigorous young men grow weary and tired. But those, my friends, who are waiting and trusting themselves to what is represented here on this table, rise up on wings like eagles. They rise up, and that is, that is a picture of salvation. That is a picture of having one's sins forgiven and being blessed by God with that blessed truth. Dear congregation, take, eat, remember and believe that the body of Christ was broken for a full remission of all our sins.
dear congregation, the cup of blessing, which we bless, is a communion with the blood of Christ. Dear friends, again, as the, as the uh, wine is distributed, I set before you then also what is clearly in our text. And as you think about taking this wine this morning to bring your weakness to God's omnipotence, bring your weakness to God's omnipotence. And how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you bring your weakness to God's power? Well, our text has said that you do that by waiting on him. By waiting on God, my friends, we bring our weakness to God's omnipotence. And that waiting implies a certain degree of patience. Because this supper, my friends, is such a happy moment for us. And such a, a blessed thing it is to have these symbols of God's love. But even this, my friends, is just a taste of another communion celebration that is yet to come. And so even this communion celebration that we have this morning is still awaiting. And still looking, my friends, for something that's yet to come in the future. That there's a time when God will bring this life to an end. And he will call his children to a celebration of communion in the New Jerusalem. That communion celebration never comes to an end. And God brings his children into union with himself. Christ is the host at that table, not some pastor, not a minister, but the Savior himself. I was with Rena DeVries this week, and I was so impressed with how weak she was. But you know, she displayed a power, my friends, that is beyond anything you'll find in this world. Because as I was speaking with her, she said, you know, she says, our time is in God's hands and I'm ready to go. Now, my friends, is that not a power? Is that not a rising up on eagle's wings? Because she's resting, and I'm not talking now, I don't want to put Rena at the center, that wouldn't be right at all, really but because she and all God's people are resting upon this finished work. And God says, now they will rise up with wings like eagles off this earth to a new Jerusalem, to a celebration of communion that never comes to an end. At that table are sitting all the saints of God. At that table sit Moses and all the saints of God. And many who once gathered here in this church and so, my friends, that calls us to wait, to wait on God. To wait for that blessed time with patience, with expectation, and with trust that God will one day bring it to pass.
Dear friends, take, drink, remember, and believe that the blood of Christ was shed for a full remission of all our sins. I continue with the form as we have it. Beloved in the Lord, since the Lord has now nourished our souls at his table, let us together praise his holy name with thanksgiving and let everyone say in his heart, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Therefore, my mouth and heart shall show forth the praise of the Lord from this time forth forevermore. Let us pray. O merciful God and Father, we thank you with all our heart that of your boundless mercy you have given us your only begotten Son for a mediator, the sacrifice for our sins, and as our food and drink unto life eternal. We also thank you that you give us a true faith, whereby we become partakers of these benefits. You have united us to Christ and to each other in the communion of saints. You have given your Son for us and to us, and have proclaimed his saving death to the whole world. Having signified and sealed the atoning sacrifice of your Son for us, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, also make us witnesses to this good news among our neighbors. Strengthen us in faith to live gratefully in this present age as we await our Savior's return in glory. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>
We'll sing now in response to the sacrament number 111 in the blue hymnal, O Lord my God, most earnestly, my heart would seek thy face. And verse 2, the loving kindness of my God is more than life to me. And in verse 3, my Savior, neath thy sheltering wings, my soul delights to dwell. We'll, uh, we'll remain seated then for this song, uh, since an offering will also be taken. And then we'll stand for the doxology and sing number 490 in the blue hymnal. So now, uh, seated, number 111, all the verses in the blue hymnal.
Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus unto all generations forever and ever. Amen.